And remember the premise that we're going through on and is that I'll make a 30, about a 30 minute presentation and then after the presentation anybody has the opportunity to comment or make any observations you desire or to ask any questions. We began our study by emphasizing the importance of being able first before we study the book to know why we believe that it is a or should be a part of the Bible or the inspired canon and we've reviewed this a little bit each time so that we can fix it in our mind I would hope that that all of us that as we finish here would be able to know and, and understand uh, these these reasons not only for this but the other books also we noted first of all that Daniel was endorsed by the Lord himself and quoted from, for example, in Matthew 24, 15, uh, Matthew, in order for him to use it, writing to Jews that he was trying to persuade that uh, Jesus was the Messiah, had to be writing to an audience that already embraced Daniel as a prophet of God. Josephus, the top Jewish historian from the first century referred to Daniel as one of the greatest of the prophets. In looking at the Greek Septuagint, translated somewhere between 280 and 250 or 240 B.C., we find that Daniel is incorporated in it and received, and also in the Greek, or I should say the Hebrew manuscripts, uh, Daniel accepted as inspired of God and part of the Jewish canon. And then when we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, Daniel was a part of those writings that were regarded as inspired by that group. Now this in and of itself does not prove it's inspired. It just simply shows that, number one, the top Jewish scholars going back as far as we can trace them have accepted it, that it was quoted by Jesus, and that Matthew used it, and it was accepted by the Jews before and after. Uh, the event of Christ. But then when we begin to tie this with other things, such as the evidence behind Jesus, uh, the evidence behind his, his resurrection, uh, the evidence behind the, the other materials, then those statements become even more important. And when we see that uh, it is locked together with these other books, a, a part of the 39 in the Old Testament, we can look at it from within this overall big context and see that uh, Daniel very neatly fits in the niche that we find it. And so it's a picture, a puzzle, if you're looking at the Old Testament, of uh, 39 pieces, and, and every piece fits to form this picture, and then picture the New Testament as completing the, the pieces, and it all forms one big picture uh, with all of it locked together and everything performing a function. And so Daniel fits right in like a glove. And we noted that when we then move internally uh, into the information in Daniel, we find, first of all, that the picture given us of God in Daniel is the same as the picture of God in all the other books of the Bible. It is perfectly harmonious with the God that we have read about up to this point and the God that we're going to see in the New Testament. Not only that, but the, the law of Moses is obviously the guiding principle behind Daniel and the Jewish people, and we see that uh, in this book.
uh, the way God operates in dealing with uh, uh, a pagan empire, uh, in uh, making known himself uh, as the true God, uh, is consistent with the way that he acted uh, when the Israelites were brought out of Egypt. And so everything morally, everything so far as the picture of God is perfectly harmonious. And then when we look at Daniel, some of the events within it, like for example tonight in the third chapter, we're going to look at a, a somewhat of a fantastic, miraculous type incident. But we need to keep in mind that the miracle that uh, you're going to look at tonight was not one that specifically happened for our faith. I wasn't there. Neither were you. It was an event that happened for those people and for Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and it was showing the difference in the power of the God of Israel in contrast with the pagan idolatrous gods. So I look, if all I had was this third chapter I'm going to look at, I wouldn't know whether it's true or false. Uh, I'd know that it's contrary to anything I've ever experienced. But I look at this third chapter from within a, a bigger context. And first of all, when I look at the whole context of Daniel itself, there are some fantastic prophecies that the people of that day would have had to believe in by faith because they were not fulfilled as yet. But yet you and I can look at them in a different way they did. In other words, we can't look at this miracle like those people that were there at that time did because they saw it. And you and I have a record. So we look at the miracle in a different way. But on the other hand, they couldn't look at these prophecies that we have studied and are going to study in Daniel in the way you and I do. They looked at those prophecies as predictions of something to come, but they hadn't come yet. And their faith in those predictions was based on prior predictions being fulfilled and on these miraculous type things. You and I, on the other hand, look back at the miraculous thing as somebody that, that didn't see it. But we look at the prophecies quite different than they do. We look at the prophecy of the second, second chapter, for example, where Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and, and it's interpreted to him and, and we can see the fulfillment uh, over the centuries, uh, and the ushering in of, of this kingdom that would never be destroyed in the first century. Also, we see the fulfillment of the material in uh, chapter 4 that we looked at last week, and we'll look at more next week and tie it in with the, the fifth chapter. And then later on, we'll get to the ninth, tenth, and eleventh chapters, and we'll run into some fantastic statements that are so fantastic that uh, if you can prove that material was written in advance, then... It literally has to be inspired. That's how concrete and obvious that it is. And so we look at those prophecies and we deal with the dating of it and then we deal with the fulfillment. And so they couldn't look at the fulfillment of it. It was a prediction to them. But you and I can look at it and, and to imagine what they felt like when they experienced this miracle, the people that were there, uh, the best I can do is to know what I feel like mentally when I study like the ninth chapter of Daniel and the second chapter and I experience prophecy, which is a miracle that takes place in the mind or in the intelligence. In the final analysis, all miracles take place uh, in the mind because even when you see something like what happens in the third chapter, your mind all the time is saying, is it for real? Am I being deceived? 
Uh, and it really doesn't become a miracle until your mind becomes convinced uh, that something is happening there that's beyond the natural, that cannot be explained in any natural way. And only when your intellect is persuaded that it cannot be explained in any natural way do you experience that miracle. And we see this, for example, in the New Testament, that the element of doubt that would exist until they actually uh, satisfied their mind. For example, in John 9, when the blind man is given his sight, and, and they will say, was this man really blind? Is this really the man that was out here begging? Go get his parents and let us talk to him. And it was only after they satisfied themselves that, that all these criterias uh, had been met and that something supernatural had taken place, did their mind accept it? Well, in the same way, when we look at those prophecies, we study them, but we do not experience the, the miracle of prophecy until our mind uh, settles all these conditions of was the event actually written in advance and did it historically fulfill these things? And then when we study that, we experience that in our mind uh, in a, in a sa same or similar sense that they're going to experience this here in the third chapter. So remember, as we study this, that this happened for their faith. We believe it because of these other unique features uh, that we can test with our mind, and therefore we're willing to believe this, uh, just as they're willing to believe these prophecies of something in the future because of things like this uh, that happened to them. Third chapter, first verse. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura, the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear it, the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing fire. Okay, now the first thing we, first observation we can make here is that when he identifies these various officials in verse 2, satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, etc., when we go back in history and look at the terminology that they used uh, in Babylon for these various positions, we can identify every one of these. In other words, the author is not pulling something off his head. We can go back in history and we can find the position of all these. What was their function in that particular government? Also, when he makes this image, this idol, and sets it up to be worshipped, he is not doing something unusual for that day. It was not an unusual occurrence in that day for a king of a pagan country that was in idolatry to have a, an idol made and then for the people to worship that particular idol. That wasn't an unusual thing at all. And so what happens here, uh, again, you and I, if we want to look at it through 20th century eyes, uh, for some king to make this great, huge image and then expect people to fall down and, and worship it, 
you know, that's, we don't know of anything like that going on in the world today. But it went on in Daniel's world. Uh, and so what happens there is not unusual at all. It is in keeping uh, with the thinking. It's sort of like uh, when you read about Abraham and uh, Sarah is barren. And so Sarah has Abraham take Hagar and have relations with her and to have a child. And, and we read that and, and we think, well, man, that is something unusual that here's Abraham, a godly man, and he loves Sarah, and, and um, this is the couple that's going to be a part of bringing the Messiah into the world, and how are they doing something like this? And we see all the problems that, that happen. But if we go back and study the customs of that day, we see that what Abraham did was not unusual at all. He was influenced by the customs of that day. It wasn't ordained of God, but it was part of the customs and the thinking of that day. And Abraham was influenced by it, and he fell into it and, and made a mistake. Well, the same with Nebuchadnezzar. Before you think of him as some terrible person, keep in mind that, that Nebuchadnezzar has been raised in a pagan country, in idolatry, and he thinks he's done something great. He's not trying to be some terrible person. And what he's doing is, is in keeping with something that may have been done at, at this particular time. Okay, now, verse 7, as soon as they heard the sound of the, hor the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the people's nations, men of every language, fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. And they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Now when you hear the sound, and he, he names all these instruments again, and then he says to them that if they don't, they'll be thrown into a blazing furnace, and what God will there be that will rescue you from my hand? By the way, put yourself in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's shoes. Uh, he's a very intelligent person. Uh, he's down in the annals of history as one of the greatest military geniuses that have ever lived. What evidence do you think he might have that his God is the... Uh, is one of the powerful gods and a true God. All right, he's conquered the Jews, hasn't he? And so the very, in his eyes, uh, in ancient times, all these people had their deities. Uh, I haven't read about any atheists personally at this period of time. They all had their deities. Uh, they may have had many misconceptions of God, but they believed in God. And they had their, their various deities. And... They attributed everything to their deity. If things were bad, they attributed to the deity. If things were good, they attributed to the deity. And so if a country like Babylon conquered others, 
then they would attribute that to their deity. So you can see that Nebuchadnezzar has reason in his eyes. He's not, I'm saying that he's not trying to be some cruel person. He has reasons in his eyes to believe in his deity. And he's been very successful. And so he wants to honor his deity. Uh, and so in, in building that golden image and all, he is uh, acting under the, the same compulsion that a Jew might be in, in, in an altar to worship Jehovah, uh, given his information basis. And, and the fact that he had been so successful was evidence that his God was the true God. So Nebuchadnezzar is not necessarily trying to be a, a terrible individual. He's doing something in perfect harmony with the customs of his time, in perfect harmony with his own belief, and in perfect harmony with the evidence that has uh, been given from his thinking anyway to prove something about his God. Well, we've noted uh, all the way through here that one of the things that God is using Israel for is to make known the true God to all these pagan countries. Well, what better way to do it? Uh, than what we're going to have here. What God wants to do here, this is not happening for you and I. We're reading about it. We're going we're to benefit because of these other things. But what God is really doing is trying to get the Babylonians to see just because you've conquered Israel, don't look down on Israel's God. Israel's God is the true God. He's different than all the other gods. And so things like this, just like in Egypt, need to happen in order to convince these people that their God is not the true and the powerful God. Okay, so here's their response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. Well, we notice something there. Uh, they don't say that they're positive that God is going to deliver them, do they? They honestly don't know. But look at their faith. It's like uh, we see something maybe here that will help us in our own prayers. It says, if you ask anything in keeping with his will, and you know that you have the petition that you've asked, then, then you will have it, 1 John 5, 14 and 15. If it's in keeping with God's will, you have confidence, you know, then you have it. But sometimes we're not for sure whether it's God's will or not. And so we pray, just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we say that if it's possible, you know, if it's in keeping with your will, there's nothing wrong with that kind of prayer. And that doesn't mean you have a lack of faith. Jesus had all the faith in the world in God. He just wasn't positive that this other was in keeping with God's will. Uh, and so that there are any number of times where you might have tremendous faith in God, but still not be sure uh, of what you ought to do, what would be God's will. And so we see a, a right attitude here. There's nothing wrong with that attitude. And so approach it with the attitude that I want the Lord's will to be done. You know, if, if this is in keeping with your will, then, then support me in it. If it's not, then don't. And then if he doesn't support you in it, don't allow it to affect your faith in a negative way. Just recognize it wasn't in keeping with God's will. That's what Jesus had to accept at the Garden of Gethsemane, didn't it? That it was not in keeping with God's will. And this is their attitude here. We know that God can deliver us. He's able to deliver us. Now, it may, not, it may be that he doesn't choose to. But we have no doubt that he can. 
and that he's able to deliver us. And, but if not, we'll go ahead and die. We're still not going to serve. And I think that attitude is one that when we pray for people that are sick, uh, are going through problems, or when you're going through problems, or when you're trying to make decisions, that there are just any number of times in life where no matter how much faith you have in God, you just simply are not positive about the will of God on that point. You're just not positive. Unless the word of God is specifically said, uh, you don't know whether God wants this person well or dead. And, and you don't know whether he wants you relieved of this trouble or he wants you to experience some of it for some other spiritual goods. No, you don't know. And, and so to pray with the attitude that I know that God is able to take care of this situation if it's in keeping with his will, but then on the other hand, not to be disappointed if it doesn't happen and just to recognize that it wasn't in keeping with God's will. Well, that's their attitude. It was the attitude of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the attitude of Paul when he prayed concerning his ailment. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Again, put yourself in Nebuchadnezzar's place. You've conquered these people. You're, they're your servants. You've already proved that your God is stronger. And see, he already has a high degree of respect for the Israelite God because of Daniel. But man, this has gone a little too far right here. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. Well, I don't know that they had any instruments like we do today to measure the temperature of anything. I don't believe they did. And here again, we see this word seven times. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't know that they knew how. This word seven is used as in a complete term. Sometimes it is literal, uh, and, and sometimes it's not. I don't believe it is here. I believe they got the thing hot as they could, and, and hotter than, a whole lot hotter than normal, and just as hot as they could get that thing. He commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement. And he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw in the fire? And they said, certainly, O king. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire. Well, you can put yourself in Nebuchadnezzar's place right about now. And they're unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of, and now he's changed his tune, hasn't he? Servants of the Most High God. Come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefaps, governors, royal advisors crowded around them, and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. So obviously a miracle, right? No, no smell, no scorch, no singe, no nothing. So obviously that the laws of nature have been defied. Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut to pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. 
And then he promotes them. Notice still, he still has not come to believe in, in just one God, has he? He still believes in a plurality of gods, but what is happening as we move through Daniel, he is developing his respect for the God of Israel. But he still uh, believe, believes in God, and he's developing a respect for the God of Israel, but he still has the concept of polytheism or, or many gods. He hasn't thrown away his own God. And as we move through, we see him constantly coming to a little better understanding. Now, a passage in the New Testament that maybe helps us understand the situation of these uh, pagan people who had no revelation from God at this point. Uh, the prophets were among the Israelites and how God looked on their misunderstanding of the Creator. We can see, first of all, in Paul's statement in Romans that there never has been any excuse for a person to not believe in God. I mean, Paul's statement is, the invisible God is declared by the things that are, so that man is without excuse. And so there's no excuse, Paul says. But then on the other hand, Paul acknowledges that a true understanding of God could only come about through revelation, uh, as God himself revealed himself in words that people could understand, as Paul said in the Corinthian letter. And so then Paul would say to the Athenians, in times like we're reading right now, in times of ignorance, God winked at. But then now he commanded all men everywhere uh, to repent. But here, that these people were doing good to examine the evidence and simply believe in God and believe in a creator. And we can see with Nebuchadnezzar, he is not maybe the terrible person that we sometimes paint him. Uh, he maybe is doing pretty good with the information he's operating on. And we can actually see him maturing and, and growing in the process. All right, now, we also see something about the deliverance of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and that it was, it was accomplished by an angel of God. And later on, when we get to Daniel thrown into the lion's den, it will be again an angel of God that will have a part here. I thought with, with the story there and the deliverance by the angel, it would be good to just uh, refresh our mind with a couple of statements in the Old Testament and in the New also concerning angels and, and their work in this realm. In the 34th Psalm, uh, talking about the providence of God and the fact that God cares and works in his providence uh, through angels. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. And now the statement. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. So he speaks that the angels of the Lord are actually concerned and involved in the care of people who are walking with God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. 
Whoever of you loves life and desires good, desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking lies, turn from evil, do good, seek peace, pursue it. Why? Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut out the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them and he delivers them from all their troubles. So we see that you pray to God, God listens, God hears, God wants to deliver, but the point is, how does he do it? It's through the, the angels, uh, that the angels are, are picturing as a spiritual beings involved in God's providence and carrying out his will, and actually he, the phrase he uses is encamped around those who fear God. All right, now move over to the 91st Psalm. And beginning with uh, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall on your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near to you. Why? For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Okay, so there again, the statement now. Does this, is he saying this in the vein that, uh, that a believer who is walking with God uh, can go through life and know that no bad thing is ever going to happen to him? Well, a good commentary on that might be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? It's our God is able to deliver us, and we're going to approach this fiery furnace from the standpoint if God wants to deliver us, he can't. He may choose not to. Well, in the same vein, when you read those passages about the angels of God encamping around those that love him and the way that they can providentially work on our behalf, think of it from the standpoint that God can deliver us any time he so desires. On the other hand, it may be the will of God not to intervene whatsoever. Remember how they tried to take the life of Jesus uh, every time he went into Jerusalem, and it seemed several times they were pretty close to doing it, and then you'd read the statement like in John, his time had not yet come, his time had not yet come. And then we finished about three and a half years, and they come to get him, he's betrayed, and what has happened? His time has come. Uh, and so then we find him on the cross, my God, my God, uh, why have you forsaken me? Or my God, my God, for this I have been spared, whichever it may be. But the point is, God interfered with their schemes providentially until it was his will to allow them to kill Jesus. Well, remember what Jesus said to the, to the apostles. He said, don't have any fear of anybody. Not a hair on your head will be touched. You just get out there and preach. But then on the other hand, he told Peter that 
You go preach, don't be afraid of anybody, but you've got a violent death awaiting you out there. Now, they're not going to get you until you accomplish my will. Paul had that attitude all the time they were trying to take his life. They're not going to get me to accomplish the will of God. Then he reached that point where he said, I know the time of my departure is at hand. And so a proper attitude then towards the angels and the providence of God is that God is always able to deliver you. And so pray to him from that standpoint. He is able to deliver you. When you go on a trip, when you're encountering the problems of life or, or you're praying concerning your family, your God is able to deliver. But pray from within the framework that all of this will be accomplished within the will of God. But isn't it comforting, though, if we can embrace that and understand it, to at least drive down the turnpike and know that sure some drunk may run into you, but as a believer in God who loves God and is striving to do his will and working here on this Lord and world and is one who reverences God, your hand, your life is not in the hand of that drunk. It may be that God permits it, but he won't do anything that God doesn't permit. And so whatever way we go out of here, it's comforting to know that our sovereign God is in control and he hasn't forgot us. If he wants to interfere, he will. If he doesn't, then have the attitude of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If he doesn't, good. Like Paul said, it's better to go ahead and be with the Lord. But if he wants me to stay, I'll stay. One other passage on the angels in the New Testament. And uh, again, we're studying Hebrews on Wednesday. Uh, Hebrews 1. And we know the context here, verse 13 and 14. He's actually writing in a context context of showing the superiority of Jesus over the angels, but in the process we learn a little bit about the angels. Verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Verse 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? There is a difference between the miracles that the apostles and the Lord and chosen men perform through the authority that God gave them to confirm this message as inspired of God, there is a difference between that and the angels working in the providence of God, carrying out his will. And sometimes I think that, uh, that in our zeal to expose the misuse of that by the holiness groups, and the way that they sometimes rape the text and take passages that were said to the apostles and applied as if it were said directly to them. If we don't watch ourselves, we can also leave the impression that, you know, all we have is the word, and then God's observing the show, and we need to be aware in our own minds and be able to comfort others that, no, we fully recognize that God is working in the affairs of man. Uh, why pray if God isn't going to listen and care and and answer in those things that are keeping with his will. But there's a distinct difference in God working through the angels providentially on behalf of those that love him and these specific miracles on the part of chosen men that happen specifically to prove that his word is inspired. The, the angels are there for God's providential care. The other was there to confirm the word itself. Any comment before we close out for tonight?
Well, of course, Nebuchadnezzar identified him as the angel of God. Some have uh, thought that this was the Lord uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, we have the term the angel of the Lord over there. And remember, even when the, uh, the three conversed with Abraham, and there was one that, was, that stood out, uh, you know, and then the others went on down to Sodom, you know. And, and we know that, uh, that there are conversations that are, where it's used interchangeably. An angel of the Lord are speaking to God. But that's, that's an interpretation. In other words, it may be so. It may be that the one referred to as the angel of the Lord, or so it, it may have been uh, the Lord. Uh, there are many scholars who believe that that is the Lord revealing him in the Old Testament. Uh, some believe that, you know, it was just, you know, the the, one of the angels. Either way, it's an, interpret it's an interpretation. Any other comment? Okay, let's conclude our study for this afternoon then. And uh, next week we'll look briefly at that fourth chapter. We covered it last week and then go into the fifth chapter on Daniel.